Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest on today's episode of Mike's Search for Meaning is Danielle Sundberg. You can connect with Danielle at her website, daniellesundberg.com, her LinkedIn, Danielle Sundberg. Instagram is at danielle.sundberg. And her book and the title of this episode is Atlas of Being, From Briefcase to Backpack, One Former Lawyer's Exploration of the Human Way. And each and every episode, I donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest's choice. And in this episode, Danielle has selected the organization Kiva. So please join me in donating. This and all of the ways you can connect with Danielle are linked in the show notes. Danielle has a powerful story of how, by all traditional metrics, she was very successful as a lawyer. She was working on a high-power case at a high-power firm. And there was a moment where she looked at herself in the mirror and couldn't really locate who she was. And that really resonates with me. I think many of us feel really lost at some point in our 20s, 30s, maybe even beyond that. And it could be really disorienting to suddenly pop into your body and go, what the heck am I doing with my life? And Danielle had one of those moments and she deconstructs how in that moment she decided to travel the world to find herself. I think travel is a really powerful way, putting yourself in different environments. It's a really powerful way to learn things about yourself, to unlearn your conditioned ways of being. And in Danielle's book, she deconstructs all the different life lessons that she learned in her travels that are also really applicable to someone like me who hasn't had the privilege of traveling the world. We deconstruct the importance of inner work and personal development work, not only for our life, Danielle and I are both parents, but also for our work and our relationships. And Danielle, as you will be able to tell right away, has so much wisdom to impart. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think that through her story, you will learn much about your own story and your own life. And with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy this conversation with Danielle Sundberg. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, Danielle. Hi, it's so good to be here with you, Mike. Yes, it's it's great to be here with you. It's it's amazing. I want to just pause and acknowledge uh, how amazing just five minutes of really settling together can be because just five minutes ago, a part of me wishes that we just recorded that, and I I don't think I could do it justice explaining in this moment, but. I was really feeling unsettled about a call that I had with a prospective client earlier, and I spoke it out with you for five or so minutes. So we were just talking about the way that energy, like as coach, it's easy to, I, I'll speak from the eye, I have a tendency to like want to do it the right way or like to meet the person intellectually where they're at. And there's something immediately connecting about your energy that in just five minutes, I feel way more settled into this moment. I just wanted to acknowledge that, that your your way of being has already impacted me a lot. 
That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And and likewise, because I said the same thing when we jumped on that I was a little bit spitting out there in my head and just having a chat for five. I mean, it's amazing because, you know, people and clients all the time will be like, I don't have time to slow down. I don't have time to practice presence. Like meditation feels like too much. I don't need anything added to my to-do list. But we know that in just five minutes, you can open up this portal to so much more calm and clarity and creativity and wisdom. And everybody has five minutes. Yes. Beautiful. I want to I want to get back into the you and I both have a very heady background. We we I'm in accounting, you in law, very much in your head for for that I, I'm overgeneralizing but I think it's safe to say that both professions are very very heady jobs and I want to talk about that at, at some point in the conversation but I always start by asking what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up oh that's a great question my dinner table was my mom sometimes my dad sometimes he was working he, he, both my parents were lawyers too so he was oftentimes not home for dinner I have a little sister and a little brother. So the dinner table was a lot of, you know, like little kid stuff. And I was mom's helper because I was six years older than my sister and eight years older than my brother. But what that allotted me was space for my mother's attention to hide the peas, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh huh. And so I was like modeling the good behavior of the, of the older sister who was very helpful and, and forking the peas into my brother's mouth, but they were really my peas from my plate. (laughs) (laughs) Fellow non-vegetable lover. Is that what I'm hearing? I, when I was little, I hated vegetables. Yeah. I look, I was, you know, nine, 10 and, and I don't think that they were a voluntary choice of (laughs) dinner food. Uh Uh-huh. But that's since changed. How would you describe what you were like as a child? And and what led you into law? Like I experience you right now as a, a deeply intuitive, strongly grounded way of being. And I imagine that it got lost in the sauce at various points in your life. I don't imagine. I read it in your book. But uh, mm-hmm. what were you, were you like that as a child? Was it? Uh, you were obviously complex as we all are, but how would you describe yourself when you were little? Yeah, I think that it's a kind of classic story of having that connection to intuition and play and imagination and curiosity and creativity and all of those things that are just natural. Like when we come into this world, we're born with those capacities. And then as our thinking mind develops and we learn to lean into it, all of those other things get a little covered up because we're in our thoughts and and in the pressure of how we're supposed to be in life and what the world is demanding of us. Our parents, we're learning like the way to be and the way to be is often not in alignment with play and creativity and intuition because we're in our traditional educational systems. It's teaching us a different way. And so along, you know, along the line somewhere, I lost touch with intuition and I actually thought it was this kind of tool that people who weren't so smart used because they couldn't think their way to a solution. 
right? You're laughing and agree. I really did. I kind of rolled my eyes when people said, my gut says, blah, blah, blah. Or my intuition is saying, da, da, da. I'd be like, all right, well, that just means that you're not at my intellectual level, right? (laughs) And oh my gosh, that is so, so far from the truth. But I think you're laughing because like, that's such a natural story that we learn to tell ourselves because we're taught to think. And like, that is the way. And so it really took, you know, basically 30 years for me to rediscover intuition and tap into all of these natural abilities that have just been waiting there patiently for decades. Yeah, well, the the laughter is certainly an acknowledgement of the righteousness that I've had about intellect. And when, when someone talks in a more new agey way i used to have a very allergic reaction to it and think <laughs> it was witchy and and bullshit really is the word i i thought if science can't support this if i can't touch it with or see it or experience it with my five senses that is some bullshit so i was laughing in recognition and it's <laughs> it's still i'm really learning a lot still about how to drop more into making choices based on my internal compass. And so I, or, or what you might call your North star. So I actually, if you could place us in the moment, which is at the beginning of your book, well, first just what, what's your book called? It's called Atlas of Being from Briefcase to Backpack, One Former Lawyer's Exploration of the Human Way. Yes. And you take us across several continents, many countries, and all of it is ostensibly to actually just learn about yourself right and so yeah I, I see if you want to address that I'm happy to hear it and also I, I wanted to hear just the the moment in the book where you spoke about how you realize this shit ain't working anymore and I don't think I want to be a lawyer and you can take either one first yeah look they're related so we'll we'll try and do what is it two birds one stone So the book follows my leap away from the law firm, from the corporate world after being diagnosed with depression and winning this $6 billion case where I was defending my client in federal trial to travel six continents and explore these fundamental questions of personal identity and self-development, like who am I and what inspires me to get out of bed in the morning? And so the book takes you across these different countries in each chapter is it like an adventure kind of like eat pray love where you're somewhere new and you get to experience somewhere new and exotic but wrapped inside each adventure is a drop of wisdom about what it means to be who i am and at the end of each chapter are reflection questions for the readers to go on their own self-discovery because you know my wisdom is not prescriptive it's not necessarily your wisdom. And so it's really important that you're using the story as the fuel for your own inner journey. Mm -hmm. So I think that, so the intro is where I talk about sitting in that courtroom during this trial and all of a sudden, essentially what happened is what I call my voice showed up way, way louder than it ever had been. And when I say my voice, I'm talking about something that's totally ineffable and we all have different words for, you know, it could be 
your intuition, the whispers in your heart, the little calling that you have um, to guide you forward in some way it could be God. It's, it's whatever you want to call it. So I'm just calling it my voice. It's like this voice of a higher elevated version of me that isn't bogged down with all of the day-to-day mundane personality crap. And I had gotten sick during this trial because, you know, during trial, you're working 20 hour days, barely sleeping, not exercising. You're just going from the hotel room to court, to the prep room, to bed for a couple hours and you're getting up and you're just recycling. And so, you know, no gym, no time to run to the grocery store and eat a carrot. Like it's just a a carousel of bad takeout food. And in St. Louis, where this trial was, (laughs) the famous food is fried ravioli. And one of the partners loved it. So you can imagine like, this is what I was eating during this trial, not taking care of myself at all. And I got sick, I was exhausted and I just had no physical stamina left to hold the voice at arm's length. It just rushed in finally. And I heard it finally. And what this voice was saying was, where are you? And, you know, I'd heard this whisper before, but it's easy to swat it away because it's like, I'm right here. Like I can touch my body and I know where I am in space and time. And and that's where I am, period. Goodbye. Thank you so much. But the difference was I was finally really listening to the energy underneath the question, which was not at all pointed to my physical location because that that can't be the real question. It's too obvious an answer, (laughs) right? So the real question was like, where is my sense of vitality? Where am I in this life that I'm living? Because I was operating on autopilot. And so it was asking me to really look in the mirror and assess whether this was the path that I wanted to continue walking. So the answer was no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you want to, I don't know if I jumped in a little too early there and cut you off if there's anything more, but I, you, you mentioned looking at yourself in the mirror and that was one of the parts that I was really moved by in the book is when you looked at yourself in the mirror for what was maybe the first time in your adult life. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, it's a different way of looking in the mirror because I'm always looking in the mirror, brushing my teeth, you know, putting my hair in a ponytail, like wiping my makeup off. But this was a really looking in the mirror where I was staring into my reflection deep into my eyes. You know, we say the eyes are a window to the soul. And I realized that for most of my adult life, I was avoiding my own gaze and not taking the time to just look into my own soul through my eyes. And so that's when I finally did it was after I really heard the true question that I was being asked. And I wasn't home is what I found. Like there was no one looking back at me. My eyes were completely empty. And that for me was, you know, it was kind of obvious. I had been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And so it lines up. And yet the thing is about my life in Washington, D.C. at this law firm where I was working at the time was getting this diagnosis is like par for the course. If you're successful, you're miserable. Like this is the the cultural narrative that we've grown up with. It's It dates back to you know, Shakespeare, it's King Lear, it's F. Scott Fitzgerald's Jay Gatsby, it's every character in Game of Thrones, they all have 
incredibly successful lives, wealth, power, prestige. And yet, right, like they are completely and profoundly unhappy. And so I just got this prescription for an SSRI and anxiety medication. and was like, okay, keep going on with your life. And that to me was what really caused me to realize there's something deeper to look at here, which is like, not just me, but the whole cultural narrative of it's normal and natural to be miserable. Was that true? You said both of your parents are lawyers. Was that true of your parents? Were they just grinding it out and and not really enjoying their life? They loved it. My, My father still practices. He gets up every day really excited. My mom no longer practices, but I think she wishes that she was. So, you know, I saw the life that I received on the opposite end of my father working at his law firm and the toll it took on fatherhood. And so that to me showed already, "Mm, this may not be the right choice for me. But he did, he really did wake up and he loved it. So, you know, it's like, you just got to stay open to possibilities. I am definitely a person who lives my life by trial and error. I'm not afraid of taking a jump into something and then deciding about it. So, you know, that's, that's essentially what happened. And it didn't, it didn't take long, honestly, for me to realize, okay, this is not my path anymore. Mm -hmm. So the part of the book that I was the most drawn to, there, there were lots of different illustrations and it go I think you went mind energy there was transformation what's the I'm missing expansion. one of them expansion yes mm-hmm. energy is what I am most drawn to I think that's my biggest edge like mind is I, I think it's really valuable to know that to be able to distance ourselves from our thoughts and to to know that the, the distinction between beliefs and thoughts and you do an amazing job in the book of highlighting all that but I actually, in my own developmental journey, that was where I was living a lot of the times. So I heard people, Dr. Joe Dispenza, amazing people who talking about the mind and ways that we can have breakthroughs in the mind. I just kept getting stuck over and over and over again. And energy, among other things, has been one of my portals into just feeling more connected to who I am, what matters to me in ways really big and really small. And so... I'm wondering if you could just speak to if it's one of the countries you went to where it you felt that that something shifted for you in a way around energy. Like when when did you start to build more of that capacity to be in touch with this might sound out there, but this podcast is for people who are willing to go out there like you're in line with the frequency of the universe or something along those lines like what how did you start to build a, a skill set around that so that you weren't just living in mind and thought and belief land all the time mm, that's such a great question you know it's like breadcrumb after breadcrumb after breadcrumb and each one takes you a little bit further and then the breadcrumbs can start getting a little bit bigger and look i'm still doing this work i'm tapping into some energetic depths of places that i never even imagined were possible And it's unlimited, like energy is boundless. And so there's so many directions we can go with it. The only thing that keeps us from it is whatever beliefs we have around what's possible. And so that's why the little breadcrumbs, I think, are a great approach because it allows your mind to expand at a capacity that it can then integrate the information without rejecting it. 
So it's not like one day I started, you know, becoming a spiritual medium and channeling people from across, you know, the, the great divide. Although that did happen in the book, right? But it's it's not the first thing that happened and it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> but it happens, the things happen in ways that are contextually allowable for my mind to go, okay, I can wrap my arms around this. And one of the first ones was understanding energy in in the form of state change from something really simple like a hug. Mm. Like we think about you know stimulants and coffee and and like melatonin and things that change our state and allow us to have more energy, go to sleep, like that shift our energy as these exogenous tools. But we have the capacity to do that without anything. And a hug is one of those great aha moments for me that showed how much it's possible. And now I know there's a ton of science, which I don't know if I knew back then, that shows the power of a hug and and I, how it measures the resonance of our hearts. I think that it's like about the frequency of our hearts can be measured like 20 feet from our personal space, our, our, our body. And so when we hug someone, we change our state because we match the frequency of the person who we're hugging. And often when you're hugging, it's because you're coming into a place of love and compassion or gratitude, or at least something positive. You're not hugging because you're mad. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a great exercise to, you know, try, but, you know, and so it, it just lifts our energy. And so experiencing these really powerful hugs from people <laughs> it seems it's so it sounds so funny but it's true like people who have dropped into their heart and have practiced i felt their hugs differently than just hugging my dad it'd be like you know a nice pal in the back oh hi danielle <laughs> right and it's like so empty in this way that you know, I feel good for a second. It's like nice to see him and have that body contact. But a hug can be so powerful. Have you had an experience like that too? It's bringing up a lot for me. Even just you saying the energetic shift that happens with a hug, I felt an energetic shift with me. So there's there's a level of power there of, I guess one of the reasons that might happen is that I've experienced the power of a really full embrace of a hug, like a, you know, 10 seconds of like really holding each other. And yes, I have had that experience. I, I'm blessed to have that experience with my parents, with my wife. I hug her all the time. That's something that we, one of our love languages is absolutely physical touch. So we cuddle all the time. And I was actually on a retreat recently you know, one one area that I'm wanting to expand a lot is my connection with men. And there's a, we can go on a whole diatribe about the ways that men are blocked off from really authentically connecting with each other. But I, this feels pretty tender to share, but I want to have more platonic physical touch. I want to hug my friends. Like I love my friends, but it's it just is we we make we have these barriers. I have these barriers that are up because I think it's weird to want to touch my friend or hug my friend. And I was on a retreat a couple of weeks ago. I actually did it with my dad. It was very much like a landmark type of, if you're familiar with landmark, it was a men's initiation breakthrough type of weekend. 
And one of the experiences we had was just go up to one other man, put your hand on each other's heart, look at each other, and acknowledge the way that you see each other. And it doesn't even, and if you didn't have anything that you wanted to say, just see each other. Sometimes I just stood there in silence for 10 seconds and just looked at the man across from me in the eyes. And there was always an embrace after that. That hug is very different from the hug that you were describing. You know, I got, I got the image of, you know, sometimes you do the, the awkward the side, hug. side hug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the, the obligatory, like, this is what we're supposed to do. So let's uh, get this out of the way and you know, flail, flail our hands around and tap each other. So mm-hmm. I, have, I have compassion for that too, but th- yeah, I, I, that's what was brought up for me when you talked about hugs. It's, it's powerful. Yeah. You're, you're speaking to something that, you know, when I, so when I went to Burning Man a couple years ago, I went to this, I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it was like a divine masculine workshop. Women were allowed, of course, whatever you are, but it was about invoking the divine masculine. And so one of the exercises that we did was paired up and we like almost didn't touch, but it was like the most gentle, almost touch. Okay. Cupping each other's balls. (laughs) Because that, yeah, that is a vulnerable intimacy. Now, of course, I don't have those. So the man I was partnered with, like, cupped my energetic outward genitalia, which still was, like, very close to my crotch, you know? It's like, and these are strangers. And, you know, whoa, like, what an experience. And then after that, you don't know, each, like, I don't know their name. I don't know where they're from. I don't know what they like to do. I don't know whether they voted for Trump or not. You know, it's like all these things that could all of a sudden keep us apart from each other. We didn't know. So there was nothing except I trust you because you are literally cupping my balls right now. Mm-hmm. And so let's form a bond. <laughs> let's fall into a space of shared intimate connection. And after that, it's like, you know, we see each other on the playa. It's big, big hugs. It's like, you know, my long lost brother. Mm -hmm. An incredible experience. Yeah. I love exercises like that. And there's a, there's a part of me that maybe an analytical part of me that's like, what, what's the benefit of, of doing that? And like, why, how did, how would you even trust someone to, to do that? Does that happen for you in any way? Yeah, of course. Like your mind wants to assess and sort it out. And and then, you know, because it wants to make sure it's safe. Mm-hmm. Like there will be value here. The value is X and it is therefore a good idea for me and it is safe. So I will do it. But if it's strange and weird and you can't assess those things to make it feel valuable or safe, then you're going to push away. And that's like totally the way we're built right? Like that's how our limbic system is wired to function. Mm-hmm. But when you're dropping into a place of trust, surrender, energy, the universe, things that are bigger than you, that know more than your little mind could ever possibly perceive. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a practice with like little small things to just skip that whole assessment piece and drop into commitment of trusting it mm-hmm. where you can. Where you can. And that was a place that I could. 
Yeah. Maybe because I'm I'm not a man, it was easier for me. But you know, also like this wasn't the it wasn't like we all enter the room and they're like, okay, pair up. Like there is a whole thing that we do before to d- drop into a place of feeling connected to you know our fellow attendees and things like that. Well, I and I would posit that's equally vulnerable for you, especially as a, a woman that's paired with a, a man. Like a, I mean that must that must have been an incredibly vulnerable experience. So it's while it's not exactly one-to-one the same there's still very much a leap that's happening there of all right here's one way that we can make sure that we trust each other and that's a word that that comes up for me a lot trust and and practicing trust and i think there are really there's ways big and small that we can practice trust and and i found myself i what i love about the book is that you're not telling everyone quit your job Go travel the world. Join me and Liz Gilbert in in the search mm-hmm. for yourself by by traveling to different countries. There's really practical, actionable ways that people can learn from your experience without having to go anywhere except inward. And so, what are what are some ways that you are practicing trust, or that someone who doesn't have the resources or the time or whatever, we could get into a, another riff about that probably about how that's probably not true but anyway what if someone doesn't want to do those things and wants to just practice trusting themselves a little bit more what are some ways that you're in the practice of trust yeah look you're you're kind of poking around a really huge issue right which is my privilege that i was able to quit my job as the attorney and just go travel the world and not really worry about anything else and like i had saved a ton of money in order to do that and i actually was working a little on this side. But I had my editor and some other folks who were reading the book point that out to me and say, you could polarize your audience because you're coming up a little bit privileged, you know, and people might not resonate. And they might say, this book isn't for me because I don't, I don't have, you know, the fancy degree, or I don't have the ability to quit my job and go travel the world. And they were like, do you want to potentially shift how you you know, offer that your narrative. And I really sat with that because no, of course I don't want to polarize people. I want people to feel like this is an accessible book that they can really tap into their own wisdom with. And what came up for me was if I want that for people, then I have to do it too. Like I have to be the model of what people are going to learn. And so if I shift from being authentic, then there's a kink in the energy that then is going to be offered to everybody else. And what I think, if you decide to pick up the book and read it, what you come away with is the whole experience of quitting my job and traveling the world is simply the envelope of experience that I use to dive inward and pull out the letter inside, which is who I am. And anything can be your envelope. It doesn't have to look any way. And so how I, in part, got to the title of Atlas of was, you know, it's sort of, you can look at it from two ways. Literally, I traveled the atlas of the world to discover who I am, my being, right? But then there's also through the book, each chapter explores a different aspect of being human, and it's discovering our inner atlas of being. And we can use anything as an atlas, right? Like it might be your relationship to your physical body as you you know, decide you want to focus on health or change your diet or go to the gym or your hair is falling out or like you're pregnant or whatever. And your relationship to who you are 
will naturally shift as you, you know, as your body changes. And you can work with that as your atlas of understanding who you are. It could be your family. It could be gardening. Like it can be anything. It does not have to be traveling the world. And so if that's not a possibility or an interest, super, but like, what is, that's the question. And then I, I forgot the other part of your question. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I'm actually drawn to you alluded to and spoke about the analogy of the letter and the envelope. And one of my former mentors used to say, we're all diamonds covered in shit. <laughs> and what he meant by that was all of the different uh, belief systems that we've in- internalized and inherited and been acculturated with, they they cover what is always a pure diamond within us. And there's no amount of damage that can be done or things that happen to us that will ever damage the diamond that is within us is always unmoved, unfazed, and there. It's just probably harder to listen to if it's covered in more shit. Your analogy is the envelope in the letter. So I'm wondering if you could just speak to, to that because I love the analogy. Yeah. I And, you know, I had other ones too, but ultimately I landed with this one with the envelope and the letter. I love the diamond covered in shit. I mean, whatever one speaks to you is the one. It's all pointing at the same thing, which is that it's this subtractive experience of peeling away all the crap, all the noise that is our personalities, our thought systems, our acculturation, like you said, all of our wounds, our traumas, you know, all those things that we think we need to work out and heal. And seeing who we are underneath, remembering that who we are underneath is someone who is not wounded, does not need fixing or healing, and is not broken, and is entirely born with everything that we need to thrive. There is nothing that we need to go earn or achieve or amass in this world, which is what we're taught we do need to do in order to prove that we are okay, that we are worthy, right? All of those things. It's where imposter syndrome comes from. It's, it's you know, 82% of Westerners suffer from imposter syndrome. I'm surprised it's not even higher, honestly. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's a margin of error of 12% or no, 18%. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, but continue. Yeah, I, I mean, the the point is really just that we do this process of self-development or spiritual journey of looking inward when we are finally through with looking at achieving and amassing. And when we realize, crap, there's always something more for me to prove myself and I'll never be done. And so you're always keeping yourself at arm's length from internal satisfaction, fulfillment, peace, ease, joy, surrender, flow, all of those things that we are craving while we buy the consumer goods and we get the bigger house and we drive the fancy car and we have the 2.4 kids with our spouse and a white picket fence, right? Like that's what we hope that will give us. And we are learning as a society, we're looking the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. All of that inner stuff that we're looking for is already right there. And the thing is actually when we do look inward and we notice that we're the diamond it's so much easier to actually have the external things that we want. It comes so easy. And it's like, 
this thing of you don't get it till you get it. And then when you get it, it's like this massive aha moment that forever will transform your life, period. The end, you cannot go backwards. It's like taking the red pill in the matrix where it's just like your old way of seeing life is gone. And that's just, <laughs> that's just it. Yeah. There have been many coaching sessions that result in either tears for me or uh, immense laughter. Those are those are usually the when there's like that big of a release valve of oh my god, I I get it in a way that I had never gotten it before. <laughs> One of those two things usually happens, and for me, it's actually usually laughter. I've been laughing a lot as you've been speaking about these different experiences or breakthroughs or shifts in paradigm, whatever you want to call them, because. I'm still working through them a lot of the time. And it also breaks my heart a little bit that we're how broken we like fundamentally, I feel that a lot of people feel that they are. And, and even that I feel that I am a lot of times that I, I still very easily can default to my podcast just needs to get this many downloads and I just need to get this many clients and blah, blah, blah about what, what actually constitutes success for me. But Something what happens when you catch yourself doing that? What do you do? If I go into a default mode, because I, I don't always do what, it, what actually restores me to a place of I'm whole, I'm, I'm perfect as I am. So when I'm, when I'm reaching out there, I will, I'll check the amount of downloads I have, or I'll, I'll try and exert control in some way of like reach out to someone who has a bigger audience or like be bolder in my outreach to clients. So it's, it's more in my come from than what I'm doing. A lot of times my come from in that place of action is I need the next thing to, to get me to the state of being that I want to be in. What actually is helpful for me is usually doing the exact opposite, putting it all down. Well, it's a little more, I, so I, I have some self-compassion for the part of me that is still like yearning for that traditional level of success, the one that's been taught to me. And so I have, I, I have compassion for that part that, that wants to be seen by a bigger audience that wants to have an impact and, and help more clients. Like that's really what underlies it. And connecting with myself usually in a small way would be like put my hand over my heart and close my eyes and just breathe with it until I can, until I'm really there. So like I can really feel that I'm not efforting to go somewhere or that I need to be somewhere else to, to be seen or heard that I'm good right here. That's, that's the baseline way that's always accessible to me. Sometimes I, if I'm lost in my inbox or doing some very heady things, I, I need to get outside. So I'll just go for like a 10 minute walk. I might connect with someone who in whatever state of being I'm in will accept me and love me as I am. That isn't going to try and fix me. So I, I have a certain amount of people in my life. I'm very privileged in that way and blessed that I've made some great connections with people that I can just reach out to and say, Hey, I'm feeling not enough right now. And I just want to see you in my mess. And in a way, that's what we did at the very top of this call. It's like, I don't feel enough right now. I'm questioning this stuff that happened not that long ago. And that's, that's a really great way for me to drop back into I'm enough. I'm whole. I'm safe. Mm -hmm. I belong all the things that matter to me. So those are, 
those are a few. Journaling helps a lot too. I mean, you have incredible tools and awareness, which is amazing. And I'm sure what you're helping your clients with. And, you know, what you're saying reminds me of essentially like what in Buddhism, right? Those, the root of all suffering is, is desire, but it's not really desire. It's desire with attachment, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, you are totally uh, not just allowed, you are like built to have desire. You are built to want to have this yearning to create impact with who you are in the world. And that's incredible. And it's not about blotting that out or distancing yourself from it. It's about remembering that you're okay with or without it. Like if you get to have that level of impact, great. And if you don't, great. Right. Cause that's really where the suffering part comes in, where we start thinking we're broken or not enough because we haven't gotten to the place that we want to get to, but like you will, or you won't. Yeah. <laughs> I love that distinction that it's, it's desire without attachment, like not, not making it a bad thing that I want those things, but let's also not put my entire sense of fulfillment and purpose <laughs> alongside that. And an- another thing that I come to is, just this is it's not all that different but the conditioning that i have around impact meaning that it needs to be some level of size or amount of influence that i'm exerting when a lot of times impact the the most fulfilling impact is just this one-on-one connection right now like what what we're experiencing is incredible impact but that that eludes me all the time that it doesn't feel like that's impact because that's not what societally feels like impact. And, mm-hmm. and there's even lots of other coaches who capitalize on this. Like I, I get marketed to all the time on YouTube videos and across the interwebs about how, let's just say gratitude is holding you back and you could have 10x the impact if you follow this system. And it's, it's really seductive. I fall into these traps all the time. So anyway, I, I say all this to just name Impact comes in all different shapes and sizes and something it's something often the smaller things that have impact that we don't even really like, for example, I wrote this book, right? And there are particular things that I am intending to convey. Of course, everyone's, you know, invited to get their own wisdom from it. But along the way, my hope is that they pick up some aha moments that fundamentally shift the way that they then look at their own inner journey. However, I have since attended, you know, book clubs and readings and and gotten feedback from readers and the things that they tell me impacted them are not the things that I intended, right? There are moments of my writing or a phrase here or a way that I describe something that just like hits them and they have an aha moment about something else that's not even related to the chapter. And so I love when that happens. You know, part of me goes, oh, crap. Like what I intended to convey is flat and it didn't work at all, right? That's my critical mind. But what's really going on is the level and ripple of impact that we have in this world, the amount that we can consciously intend or even understand is like the tip of the iceberg. There's so much that we are doing that impacts the world that we're not aware of and in small moments and hopefully, hopefully 
you have in your community someone that shares your impact with you the small like it could be from 15 years ago there's something that you said offhand in this story that has been sitting with me for the last 15 years right and it's like really like I don't even remember saying that mm-hmm. it can be yeah it can be those super small things I'm so glad that you brought that up mm-hmm. and it, and like you said it, it usually is those super small things those are those are like what at the moment, the, the ordinary, it's something I ask at the, at the end of the interview is what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy. And, and I think maybe another thing that I can ask is what's an ordinary everyday moments that impacts you, right? That those are like, that's what life is really made of. And a lot of my journey has actually been connecting with more mundane moments, just everyday encounters and, and seeing the significance of those. And that could be as small as smiling at someone when you pass them on the street, right? Uh, you have no idea what what impact every action that you take can have. And uh, I definitely need to hear that right now. That's it, it feels very elusive for me. So thanks for yeah, thanks for bringing it in. I I also I also am appreciating your ability to like something something I've noticed about you is that your curiosity has you asking questions to me too. And I love, I love the opportunity to reflect on the questions I'm asking you. They, they challenge the way that I think and feel. And, and I grow from having thought provoking conversations like this and being challenged to, you know, in real time, like, how do you come back home? Mike? what, what are, what are the ways that you drop back into yourself? So I just, I appreciate the way that you are, that you invite the, the curiosity, the questions both ways. Thank you. Yeah, I I <laughs> I appreciate you appreciating that. You know, I was thinking about this actually recently because this is connected to a longer story we can go into where I just completed a journey with this really fantastic psychedelic stack that I've never done before. And at the end of it, I had this crystallization of something that I knew, but it really just went aha for me. And that was you know, I'm I'm sort of in the process of building my website fresh. Like I haven't done it in five years. It's about to be launched in about a couple of weeks. So it'll be launched by the time this airs. And because things have just been iterating so fast that I just haven't wanted to invest the time or money into redoing my website yet. So now I am. And so a piece of that question has been, who do I want to really work with? Like, who are my people? And what I keep coming to is my people are high performers, high achievers, executives who have done some level of inner work already and know that that's the key to their next level of success. And they just want help getting there. And so one thing that came up was, well, why? Like, why don't why don't I want to work with people who are in their dark night of the soul or coming out of trauma or want to scratch at this, you know, itch for the first time? Like that is, I've done that work with people and it is incredible but I'm just not feeling it right now. So what was coming up for me is, is why. And what I got to was because I'm not stretching and growing as a coach, as a human, like in the capacity of what I can do when I'm doing the work for people who are, you know, just starting to scratch at an itch or whatever, like really looking for help to come into homeostasis. Whereas I grow and stretch by people who are 
asking something of me to show up more powerfully so that they can show up really powerfully, like really powerfully. Like these are people who already know how to create incredible success in the world. And so I really have to make sure that I'm showing up at my best so that they can show up at their best. And so they stretch me and grow me. And that's exactly what's happening in this conversation. Why I'm curious and asking you questions because I get to stretch and grow through your answers and through the way that you perceive the world. And even the way you ask me questions is like, well, I wouldn't have used the same words necessarily. So it's just a clue into who you are and how you you know, operate in this world is such an amazing gift to me. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. And oh, there's, there's so many different things that we could talk about and something, something that's been lingering in the back of my mind that, that you speak really well to is around these binary thinking is, is the short way that I would put it, the either or thinking or that something is good and something is bad. And one of the gifts that we can give as coaches is to be able to help folks and ourselves tune into maybe one way to say it is the universe is presenting it this thing in this way for a reason and let's become discoverers of what that reason is like why is this challenge hitting me in this way at this exact time so in whatever way you want to riff on this how do you look at either or thinking how do you how do you expand your own capacity or your clients capacities to see the gift in their challenges or their pain or their suffering yeah like how how do you look at thinking about things differently. It's very, it's like insidious in our culture to have either or this is good, this is bad, right, wrong, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And and you are a student of paradox, right? I but, sure am. Yeah. So I feel like you could speak to this a lot more than I can speak to this, but like the way I see it is, you know, I'm visualizing two sides of the coin and there's always another truth than the one that you see. Because for something to be true, something else also has to be true. For example, if you feel like you have no clarity and you feel super stuck, which is what so many people feel, don't know how to move forward. The truth is that you do actually have clarity, right? Because you are clear that you don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And that may not seem like great clarity to have, <laughs> but it is. Because what you do when you know you don't know what to do is different than if you thought you did know what to do. And you just gave us some examples of what you do, right? Like when you are, when you know that you're not in your, your centered grounded space, that you look to people who can just kind of hold you for where you are or, you know, whatever the thing is, it's, it's a different path that you go down when you have clarity about where, what you're feeling even if that's feeling stuck. So sometimes it's just pointing that out, you know, to, to folks of like, there's actually a different truth available. Sometimes I, so my mentor and coach told me that she has a client that comes on for like 10 minutes. You know, she holds about maybe an hour or two hour long container with her clients. I'm not sure anymore. But she had a client who would come on and their session would just be 10 minutes long. He would go blah and tell her the story of what he's you know dealing with, what's ruminating for him. And she would listen and she would just say, hmm, is that true? 
he would go, oh, yeah, right. Okay, thanks. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's just that kind of reminder of, oh, you got really sucked into a story here. Now let's zoom it back out and see what else is possible. Mm -hmm. And I, I really love the idea that when we feel really stuck or like this is 100% not working, that that's actually a sign of clarity in, in a, a big way. I think that's a lot of times that that's one version of person that reaches out to a coach in the first place, right? When, when someone's convinced that they're doing okay, but the undercurrents are like not okay. And then they come to that stuck halt that that's actually, I wish it weren't so, but a lot of times that's where the initial action is taking or taken, right? That my old way of my old patterns, my old way of being, whatever I thought I needed in my life, it's, I've done it all. It's not working. And our stories are, are similar in that regard that we did everything that was laid out for us. And it felt like that's what we were supposed to want and should want. And those are, of course, dangerous words that we, we know now. And we realize it's broken. This isn't work. I feel I felt more miserable making more money and the highest status role of my first job than I have at, at probably any other point of my career and, and more lost and more distance from myself. So all that's to say, when we're feeling really stuck, it's it's a cool, I, I don't think I've actually heard it that way before that actually there's a lot of clarity around being really stuck, that there's two sides, the, the truth is on both sides of the coin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw something just flickered through my brain and then it passed as soon as it came through. So I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> yeah. Right, no worries at all. So Another curiosity that I'm having, because in my growth, pain has been an incredible teacher and it's something that I spend a lot of time avoiding. I've certainly historically spent a lot of time avoiding. Like if That's I... Okay, keep what, going. Is, You're diving so, into the, the exact thing. You're getting there. Just go. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, most of my growth these days comes from being able to tolerate, not tolerate, learn lessons from the pains in my life. And one of those, one of the ways that I get uncomfortable on a daily basis is if I'm bored, like looking for the next, instead of sitting in the boredom and, and appreciating like, what is this boredom teaching me? I will go to the next podcast or do some sort of, you know, do 10 air squats or something, right? Like something, something that I want to, I want to shift out of the state that I'm in right now because it's uncomfortable. And it doesn't have to be boredom, but I know that you have reflected on different moments of pain in your life and they taught you incredible lessons. So I'm just, I'm wondering if it's something that happened in your life or, or how you just look at pain in general as a teacher for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Suffering is our biggest teacher evolutionarily. Our limbic system has developed over thousands of years with one goal, which is to keep us safe. And it does that through suffering, right? Don't touch the hot pan, you learn that's painful, don't do it again, That that's not safe. 
And so we all have our own personal threshold for what we are willing to tolerate as far as suffering. And no one can change it for us. No one can take it away. No one can tell us when it will be. Like if you are feeling that, like, for example, I was depressed at my law firm, but before I was depressed, it was something less, you know, that less visceral. And no one could say, you're going to have to wait three months until you're full-blown depressed before you make a change, right? No one knows. And I didn't know. So whatever we get to whatever our tolerance is of what we're willing to, to deal with in our suffering, that's when we hit our wall and we go, ah, right? I'm stuck. I'm, I'm depressed. I'm, you know almost diabetic or like whatever the thing is that's causing us to realize we need to make a change in our lives. So pain and suffering, incredible, incredible teachers, but they're teachers when we're unconscious because that's what the limbic system is for. It's just, you know, this reflexive ingrained way of how we learn. The thing about that moment of going, I've had enough is that we shift into consciousness because we do a couple of things. We get present, right? We are unable to distract ourselves from how we feel or from the pain, whatever, whether it's physical, mental, emotional. No amount of scrolling our phones or, you know, drinking wine or eating the cake or, you know, scrolling Netflix is going to eliminate that suffering. We cannot escape our present what is. So we get present and we drop into awareness. We have this incredible aha moment that we don't even recognize as an aha moment, which is really simple. It's, I don't want to live my life like this anymore. That is incredible wisdom. That is your compass speaking to you saying, choose a different path. It is time. And the thing about our level of suffering is when we finally hit it and we recognize that insight, we trust it because we don't want more pain. And we know by now that more pain is coming if we keep going that way. And trust is usually the piece that's the hardest, going back to your original question about trust. I love this full circle. Okay, about trusting ourselves is we're not taught how, right? Because we're taught to trust data and science and advisors and experts and other people who are gonna tell us how it is. We're not learned how to look inward and trust our own wisdom and insight until we suffer enough and then we do it and we make a change like we start going to the gym or we prioritize our family again and stop looking at our phones while we're at the dinner table and it's going to last as long as you remain conscious of it so the trick is to stay conscious of it like right so when we repeat our patterns we drop back into unconsciousness and suffering becomes our teacher again or in different contexts of our life like maybe we've learned the lesson in our health. And we now have this amazing regimen of going to the gym four days a week and, you know, eating lots of broccoli, but other aspects of our lives, we're still very much suffering. And then we learn the lesson again and again and again, or we can shift into really intentional commitment to living a conscious life, which is when we put presence, awareness, and trust at the forefront of how we make decisions. And then suffering doesn't need to be our teacher anymore because we are ahead of it. What's it like to do all this work as a parent? I'm going to be, by the time this episode is released, I 
will, God willing, be a father. And congratulations. <laughs> thank you. My my son is due in August and wow. this will probably be coming out in September. So I have lots of fears about how I'm going to, uh, there, there's a lot of, it's multi-layered. One is I want to model the behavior. I know that me espousing certain values and saying you can do whatever you want while I am modeling the opposite of that is not, it, that's what my son and my children will model. So there's one layer of it is like, how do you model what matters to you for your kids, but but while also honoring that they might have things that matter to them that that don't matter to you. Does does that make sense? Like, how do you honor their individuality while also you know, giving them structures and and ways of like this is the type of family that I want to raise. I I am already struggling with this before before I even have my children on the planet. <laughs> well, what, what do you mean by struggling with it? It's an internal source of strife in some way is like, I, I think I'm already highlighting, which of course, I, I mean, even in real time, as I'm speaking this out, I feel like it's, it's great that it's being surfaced in this way, but I'm already seeing the ways that I talk about being that I'm not being, and I have fear that my son is going to internalize those. So one one way that that's happening right now, I t I love talking about abundance. I think abundance is like I want to be tuned into abundance as much as possible in my life. But I'm currently at a point where I don't doesn't really feel like I have financial abundance. Like I I want to be generating more income, and I'm and I'm not quite at the place I want to be yet. So as I project a little bit into the future, I. I'm thinking to myself, I have a little bit of fear and internal conflict around how do I model, but like, it doesn't feel super accessible to me right now. I, I don't actually feel abundance, but I want to, I want my son to know that everything is possible if he really believes it. And yet I'm, I don't feel capable of, of believing it a lot of times. So that's, that's one specific example, just like around my finances right now. That's such a beautiful intention. Oh my gosh. What a lucky son. Mm. I mean, just your awareness of, of the way that you want to model being human for your son is going to be, I mean, from be, speaking from my experience, right? I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old is the underlying energy that he's going to pick up. So important. So important. And, and look, like, I know people who, who are millionaires who say, I can't wait to make more money because then I'll finally be financially abundant. Mm -hmm. So when you say you're not yet at the place where you feel like you're making the amount you want to make, like that doesn't stop from the outside. And you know that. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, we're going to have gaps in what we believe or want to believe and what we're experiencing in the way our bodies are processing our experience. That's to be human, right? That's the trust gap. That's totally normal. So I think more than, you know, really trying to muscle a way through parenthood where your son has no trust gap. I mean, it'd be amazing. That's incredible, right? But instead of that, it's modeling how you navigate a trust gap. 
to mm. him. Like how you are approaching, how you are approaching this, this, let's just take the abundance kind of context of feeling like there's this gap in where you want to be and you know you, or maybe you don't totally believe that you can get there. You're working on that belief that you can get there and you're doing everything you can to get there. What does it look like for him to see a parent who has big dreams and is chasing them? Like, does he see a parent who's, you know, critical and down on themselves? And it's not that you can't show those things. Like, let's be clear, you can, but then what happens? Then how do you also show self-compassion and grace and, and learning from those moments and saying, Ooh, I was really, I was really hard on myself today. I could use a hug. Right. And it's just modeling how it's normal and natural to, ha- to ebb and flow and how we approach it. That's like always what I'm thinking about with my kids too. You like nail on the head because my daughter, when she was like maybe two-ish, so not that long ago, a year ago, started school, started her Montessori preschool. And, you know, the Montessori philosophy to things is really about slowing down and taking their time to learn how to do things for themselves and teaching them independence and that they can do things really small things like putting on her shoes and their Velcro shoes. Like it's just, you know, it's simple stuff. And so she would come home and say like she couldn't do something. And that really hit me really, really hit me because so much of the karma that I work out in my own life is around my own self-trust and my capacity to, you know, up-level the way that I show up in the world. And so I immediately, I'm like, yes, you can, (laughs) right? Like you can do anything. And she watches, you know, frozen all the time. And it's like, let it go. I can be whoever I want to be. And, and Moana, where it's like about her adventure and following her heart and, and just exploring how far she can go in the world. And she watches them and I'm cheering her on in the background, like, yeah. And then here I am kind of like, Oh, but can't, but can I do that? Like, can I go speak on this bigger stage? Can I, like, I just did a TEDx a couple months ago and I was like, can, can I do that? Will I do that? Will I be chosen to do that? And then, you know, I was and I did it and it was great and amazing. And that gap still can exist. And so, what I noticed for myself is looking at how I approach navigating the experience of the gap. And I'll say that now as a three and a half year old, very wise and mature, she does say she, we have, (laughs) whether it's just, just like hammering it into her head, but she just says, I can do anything. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's a a good reminder that, Hey, Mike, you're, you're not going to be a perfect parent. And actually modeling that is a beautiful gift to my, just owning that, owning what's true for me is incredible gift to to my son and to anyone that's in my life, right? To just, I I love the, we're going full circle on the hug too, right? Like daddy was hard on himself and, and he could use a hug today. That's a beautiful thing. That is no small thing to be able to vulnerably say like, didn't feel great today being me, but I'm still worthy of love and a hug and I could use that right now, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And we're the first generation of parents who are actively apologizing to our children. Mm -hmm. Think about just that slight difference in the way that our children are going to grow up. 
massive. Well, I, I have a, a couple of lingering curiosities. You, you mentioned that like education is something I think about a lot too, and the severe limitations of the way that you and I were educated. And in as much as it caters very much to developing analytical capacities, thinking very much linear thinking, very mind-based, very little, if any, attention paid to emotional experience, tuning into your own inner guidance. <laughs> it feels funny to even say that because of how little of attention is paid to that. And I know that Montessori school is a step in, in the right direction, but like, how do you look at education for uh, how, how you look at it for your children? Like, What, what do you think is important for their education? exactly what you just said. <laughs> totally. I mean, that, that was my experience. I didn't realize because I excelled in school that it was so traumatic for me. And mm -hmm. so when I was looking at schools for my daughter, um, you know, some of them are, they like go through middle school. So even though she's three, like she could potentially be there till she starts high school. And so they talk about, you know, their, their middle school programs and, and then they were like, we don't give homework. We don't believe in homework. We believe in play. And that time should be for development in other ways. And when I read that, I just started bawling. And I was in the middle of, of a bar. It was like two in the afternoon. I was in the back of a bar kind of working because I'm the kind of person who likes some, some noise and some stimulation when I work. And I was just like crying in the back of this bar because I didn't know how much that homework had traumatized me as a student. And one of the things I love about Raya's school is her teachers actually one day called me and said, please come pick Raya up from school. She's not feeling well. And I, you know, had been with her all morning and she was fine. You know, to me, she was fine. There was no outward appearance of feeling sick. So I roll my eyes. I go pick her up and I talk to the teacher and ask what's going on. And the teacher says, I don't know but we want her to trust her body's wisdom. Mm. And so if she's saying she doesn't feel well, then we want to honor that. And I said, yeah, I do too. You know? Oh, hmm. And so I brought her home and the next morning she woke up like covered in mucus and coughing. Like she felt it coming. It was wow. amazing. And so those are just like these, again, like we're talking about impact and those little things like that teacher saying that to me is still with me. And I still think about how can I continue to trust my child's wisdom, however it bubbles up. What do you think struck the chord so deeply around play being missing or with homework? Like that's something that I really lands with me too. And it's something that I find myself coming back to a lot there, there's like a way that i schedule play in my calendar or something and i'm like come on I, this is my natural birthright to say like live to enjoy and to be alive so what is it about play that feels like it strikes the chord with you that's exactly it i think that i grew up with this internal agreement to achieve success at all costs and one of those costs was fun and play mm -hmm. and what actually is really, really alive for me right now. It was also a really big piece of this psychedelic journey that I just did was not just intellectually knowing that that's backwards and that, you know, success comes through play, 
it was embodying it at this deeper level where now I'm naturally oriented to play first and trusting that play is going to lead to so many more opportunities and creative ideas and aha moments than if I was just sitting behind my laptop, banging my head against the computer, drinking my fifth cup of coffee at 11 p.m. And how do you how do you embody play today? And I, I know that that question can, you know, play could mean asking a question to your clients with just a, a little bit more of like a smile or something like that. But what is like, what does play mean to you in current Danielle version? Okay. So one of the more obvious answers is through my children, right? They are just totally portals to play. That's all they want to do. And when I am actually able to surrender the thing that I think that I should be doing, like answering an email or cooking dinner or putting away the Play-Doh, and I just get down on the floor and I play with them, time slows down. We are just in the moment. I'm having so much fun. My body feels clearer and calmer and there's always laughter. And it's just, you know, it's just the best. There are some times when I'm exhausted, truly just bone tired. So super excited for you to experience that as a parent. (laughs) And there is nothing in me that wants to get up and play. No energy. And so with that, I've been playing with what's the, what's the way I can expand my definition of play. So it doesn't have to mean like jumping up and down and being excited and, and laughing and singing and dancing. What are other ways that I can be playful? And there is funny, I haven't looked at it yet. My husband just sent me on Instagram something that he saw that was like a a reel from one of those parenting accounts. It's like five ways to play with your kids while laying on the couch. (laughs) (laughs) I'm super excited about that. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but like there are so many ways to play if you just allow it to be something that you get to be a little bit looser with, lighter with, you're not gripping so tightly on like what the experience needs to look like for it to be, you know, right or successful or correct, you know, put your word in there. Play right now is also very intellectual because like you said, you and I are both really heady people. And so play is curiosity and, and expanding more into different things that I'm curious about and getting to read about them or just learn about them in different ways. And one of them right now for me is diving into the mythology of Atlantis. Mm. It is something that I have always been like, no, thank you. Not real, no data, no evidence, like cool story, but I don't care. I also had no interest in the astral realms. Like it was all part and parcel of the same thing to me of like people telling me, oh, you're Palladian. It's like, what? That means (laughs) nothing to me. Like, why can't I just be human? And so diving into Atlantis has been something that really recently has come up for me in this new way where I'm truly, honestly interested. And that shift has, again, been a long time in the making of me wanting to expand energetically what I am open to being possible. Mm. And so I've been like researching different books and podcasts and people who are experts on like Lemuria and Atlantis mythology and da da da. And I'm super excited to get into it. And it feels like play. I love that. Is there, I'm, I'm being reminded of one of the cute little stories that you told in the book about just talking about 
human mortality and how long we're capable of living. And you had what I experienced, at least, uh, this might be another thing that maybe you didn't intend with the book, but I found it entertaining the way that you were kind of playing with your husband around, but is it possible to live 150 years? Is it possible to live 200? Like, why are we capping it there? Is it possible that humans can live forever? And I, I love the, I guess the come from that I'm experiencing there is that if we believe something truly and embody that belief, humans have shown time and time again, it's possible. Is there something that like feels edgy for you that you believe to be true that you know, maybe other people don't, but you, you believe it or, or some, some way that you're stretching yourself around your beliefs right now? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's so funny because like talk about paradox. I do on one hand, completely and unabashedly believe that anything is possible. And it's simply our mindset limit. What we can experience is our reality. And on the other hand, I just told you how I'm like, mm, don't tell me that I'm like Syrian or Palladian or like, don't tell me about my astrology because that's like garbage. So that is exactly where I've been wanting to push. And that's why this Atlantis thing has come up. It's it's not necessarily that like, I want to trace my lineage back to whatever planet I'm from before I'm human. I mean, sure, if that shows up, great. But it's more, it's more just about this realm that for me feels like a black box. That I'm like, well, I really want to scratch at it. I really, really do. Because I'm missing an entire realm here. And that realm of the cosmos is so much bigger than, right? Like, than, like the universe is forever. So it's like, yeah, let's just dive into that a little bit and be a little bit more open to it and a little looser with what's possible there. And so Atlantis has shown up for me, I think, in part because it is still Earth-based but it connects it's like a bridge into kind of that astral idea of sort of like mythic technology and and the ways that humans were connected to universal consciousness through things like crystal skulls and you know things that maybe two years ago i would have rolled my eyes and been like i'm done listening i'm no longer present in this conversation and now all of a sudden i'm like leaning in like mm-hmm. help me more <laughs> Yeah. Well, Danielle, is there anything that we haven't spoken about so far in today's conversation that you would like to bring into the conversation now? And if if not, then I just have a couple more questions for you. Fire away. Yeah, we're good. Well, one of them I, I alluded to earlier, and I would love to know what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy. I mean, it's definitely around my kids. Absolutely. Being a parent is the most expansive adventure that I've ever embarked on. Despite six continents, you know, this is way more expansive than that. I think Bruce has a quote that's like something about, you know, there's way more out there through the eyes of someone else than in traveling the world. Mm-hmm. And having kids is such a portal to, you know, newborn consciousness when they're really young, but just to experience that connection to creating a human being that is like totally relying on me for 
everything. Mm-hmm. For play, for nurturing, for safety, for teaching and guidance and everything. And so when I wake up in the morning and I see my kids, it's just this, you know, of, of just, wow, I have the incredible privilege of helping you find your way through life. And then, you know, they can wake up crying and cranky and I want my milk and don't touch me and Ari's pulling my hair. And it's not like they wake up like, mommy, but it's it sort of doesn't matter because you know it's like i can drop into frustration and exhaustion and like i don't want to deal with this right now but underneath of that is immense gratitude and appreciation for my life with them beautiful well, you've, you've got me excited for being a parent and the lack of sleep that I'm going to have as well. So looking looking forward to all of it. Mm-hmm. When you hear the word success, who is the first person that comes to mind and, and why do you think that person comes to mind? So right now, as you say it, the person who comes to mind is the really the founder of transcendental meditation who said that success through anything is through happiness because you know that that was really etched into my heart when i first intentionally started this voyage of self-discovery and realizing that success isn't external and it's not about the amassing and the achieving and looking for some help to redefine success and to create my own terms for what success could be. And he, you know, of course, came in at the exact moment. I was looking for a tool to manage burnout and, and stress and overwhelm. And I looked to transcendental meditation and that just came into my life. And it was perfectly suited to the entire adventure that I went on. And, and now even in talking about play, like, Play and happiness to me are inseparable. Mm-hmm. Where do you feel most unfinished? I mean, we've we've started to explore some of that terrain in in the conversation today, but like when you're sitting down with your coach, what's what's the edge that you're, or if you were sitting down with your coach right in this second, what would be the edge that you would want to be exploring? The thing that I've been working with the last year and a half is the power of motherhood. When I was pregnant with my son, I experienced this incredible anger that I did not experience when I was pregnant with my daughter. And it felt like I was holding so much anger that it couldn't possibly all be mine. And the anger was about that invisibility that mothers and probably fathers to whatever different extent, probably especially stay-at-home fathers feel about their self-worth and their identity. Because in our culture, we, you know, have entangled who we are with our profession. And as a pregnant woman, it just kind of hit me like a wall. And I had done enough work on myself and redefining success 
at that point that what struck me was, oh, okay, I have taken ownership and agency over success in the bucket of professional life. I can do anything I want as long as I'm happy, that kind of thing. But I hadn't yet let it spill into my wholeness as a human in motherhood and that I am not broken, I am worthy, all of those things. If I were to have chosen to just be a stay-at-home mom and how invisible they are in our society, how in, like obviously pregnant women are visible to the extent that we hold doors open for them and make sure that they always have access to a bathroom and you know things like that. But beyond that, like they're invisible. And middle-aged mothers, I think, are pretty invisible. And the whole like invisible labor force, like, you know, stuff that we as society are starting to talk about more. I just felt it emotionally. So, so angry. And it was at, you know, the world for creating this false limiting belief of who we are, that we're only worthy if we have this profession or if we're men. And the anger moved. And then what showed up was fear. Right? Of course, stuff. Mm-hmm. And the fear was, well, what would happen if I actually fully stepped into the power of motherhood and scrapped all that bullshit, like covered what, you know, stripped the mud, the shit off the diamond and just like owned being the diamond. What would it look like? How powerful is that diamond? Like no wonder our society for hundreds of years has put a lid on the power of being a mother. There's something powerful there. And so each day, my edge is stepping more powerfully into owning being a mother and what parenting is. And what I found is like everyone has a family. That's one thing everyone has, whether you know your biological parents or not, whether you were raised with them or not, you have a family. You were born from someone. And so family has become this really beautiful sandbox to experiment with who we are in our lives and how we show up in life. And there is, I feel like no better place to start doing that inward journey than at home and with our family and in relationship to the most intimate people, not necessarily physically in our lives if they're not around, but to like our karmic being of who we are. Right. Because if you didn't grow up with a dad that has just as much impact on you and who you are in this world, and if your dad was there every day at dinner time. Mm. So that's where I am with my edge. Well, hot damn. I'm glad I asked you that question. I have I have some goosebumps right now. And it's amazing to see the way that you're stepping into the power and your power of motherhood. So just a a couple more questions. One is just where would you invite folks to connect with you online? I know you have a website, Instagram, LinkedIn. Are there any other places that you'd invite folks to connect with you? Of course, the book. Yeah, I would say just go to my website, which is my name, daniellesundberg.com. And you'll find everything there from the book to how you can work with me either as a speaker at your organization or a coach privately. And... I have a course coming out soon that you'll find there. That's probably the most central place to go. Beautiful. And uh, every episode I ask 
for the guests, which is you today to select an organization that you want to raise awareness for. And you selected, forgive me if I mispronounce it, Kiva, is that right? K-I-V-A? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Is Would you like to just say a word or two about why you selected Kiva, why why that is an important organization to you? Sure. Are you, are you familiar with it? I'm not, actually. Okay. So um, it was introduced to me by my mother-in-law a couple of years ago, and I have just been active in it for the last few years, which I think is just personally an incredible win to stay committed to an organization for that long. Um, they just do a really good job of helping you stay connected to the, the thing that you're helping with. So what it is, is essentially microloans to people all over the world and the United States, helping them with their projects, their business, um, helping them grow. And, and I have been paid back every single time. Mm-hmm. And when I get paid back, the money stays you know, in their platform and you can loan it out again. And every time I just add a couple of dollars, add a couple of dollars. So like eventually every time I've loaned money to one of these projects or one of these usually women, I first of all get paid back, which I don't know about other organizations and if that really happens or what percentage rate it happens. But I think that's incredible because it it's just the success rate of these people are really building something that then they have the ability to pay you back. And that's what it's about. It's not about giving the money. It's about giving them the tools to reach the success so that then, you know, we can keep circulating. And so then I get the loan back and I add a few dollars and I give it to the next person. And I love that about this platform that, that it's really built around having the people on it succeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the final question that I ask in every interview, Danielle, the podcast is called Mike's search for meaning. And I would love to know in your words, what it means to live a meaningful life. That's a great question. So I would have to go back to something we talked about earlier, which is when, and I talk about this in the book, when I looked at myself in the mirror for the first time and there was no one home, right? My eyes were empty. And that to me was the essence of why I was depressed. I felt like I had no meaning in my life. I was operating on autopilot. So what I do now, I have a practice every day of looking at myself in the mirror and really seeing myself because that way it doesn't matter what I see. It doesn't matter that I see my gray hairs growing out or that I gained a couple pounds from last week because I had some midnight snacks or, you know, I'm wearing a t-shirt that has milk stains on it from a baby or whether I really like what I see in the mirror. It, it, It doesn't matter. The point is that I see myself there. Like I am here and I am engaged in my life. And then I go, ah. and then from, from there, everything does feel meaningful. An incredible answer and a lovely conversation and interview. So Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time to be here and bearing with a little bit of the technical difficulties at the end here. It was such a wide ranging conversation and we, we covered, we could have probably spoken about a million different things, but I'm really glad that we spoke about what we did today. It, it felt very timely for me and it's not lost on me what a gift it is to 
to be able to connect with someone who like we've named a couple of times now in, in just a couple of moments can help you feel safe. Like I feel safe in my body when I'm connecting with you and feel safe exploring and excavating all the deep territories that we explored today. And that's an incredible gift for me. And in relation to what we said about impact before, just know that you have had an incredible impact on me in this moment and in these past two hours or so. So thank you so much for being here. It was an incredible treat and gift. That is an amazing thing to hear. I really appreciate that. I mean, you know, also hats off to you because you have the ability to notice your own experience in real time and see what's really working in you and what's stirring something up alive in you and then being able to clearly communicate that back out. Like that is an incredible circuit. So thank you because I Mm. appreciate that for sure. And I had so much fun chatting with you too. Awesome. And to all the listeners, I hope that when you look at yourself or if you look at yourself in the mirror tonight, that you see your full self. And I love Danielle's big sigh there. I could use a big... And I start I start every interview in my intro with that deep breath as well. I invite everyone into a deep breath. So yeah, to all the listeners, whenever you're listening, have a, a wonderful rest of your day or evening and sending you lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.